Good to be with you this morning. It is the first Sunday of 2020, and uh, it's the first Sunday. I'm actually very thrilled and excited to be back in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, we took uh, several weeks off as we were preaching through Advent, and now we are coming back into our series on the Gospel of Mark in full swing, uh, jumping right back into where we left off. And I'm excited because these next uh, two chapters, Mark chapters 7 and 8, are some of my favorite in all of the Bible. And you probably chuckle because you're like, oh, the whole Bible is the pastor's favorite. Well, yeah, but these are like my real, real favorite, <laughs> um, if I can say that. Uh, I really love what Jesus does here in Mark 7 and 8, uh, the conversations he has and the teachings that he presents, because uh, they're not just extremely significant for Jesus' disciples here, uh, but they are very, very relevant to us even now today. I, I especially think you'll find that so uh, with today's uh, passage. We are right back in Mark chapter 7. Uh, Nathan, Pastor Nathan read those verses. We're going to cover all verses 1 through 23 this morning. And this chapter finds Jesus in familiar territory. It finds him once again in sort of a conflict, dealing with some contention between he and the religious elite of the day. You know them as the scribes and the Pharisees. As on uh, many other occasions, Jesus goes out of his way, sort of, to show that he wasn't here to please these guys. He hadn't come to preach to them and appeal to them. And in fact, if you read Mark and if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that oftentimes it appears as if Jesus is sort of deliberately rustling the religious feathers of these guys. He's doing things and saying things that doesn't appear very Messiah-like. And he's hanging around people that he probably shouldn't be hanging around, according to them. And they didn't like that very much. <laughs> Such is why he was uh, dealing with uh, uh, unwell people on the Sabbath. He was healing people in the synagogues on the Sabbath. He was hanging out with people that they didn't like. And Jesus wasn't doing this because he was a bully. He wasn't doing this because he wanted to pick fights. He was doing this because he wanted to show how dangerous the teachings and philosophies and the doctrines, and might I say, as we'll see here, the traditions of these scribes and Pharisees really were. He wanted to pinpoint exactly their, the error of their ways, and such is why he is always at odds with these Pharisees. And that is what we're going to see here this morning. It's a theme of the Gospels. Mark presents this. The, the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. If you read Matthew, you'll find that over and over again. Jesus, these confrontations with these guys. And it always, what you'll find, it always comes back to some sort of contention that they had with Jesus regarding his interpretation or application of the law. It always came back to how he had somehow contradicted what Moses had said or written down in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers or something like that. That's why he was always in a dialogue with them. Because he was trying to prove and show to them, no, you don't understand the law that you claim to be experts in. And he's showing the Pharisees that, and he's showing his disciples that, and by large stretches, he's showing us that too. That we don't really understand that this law that we often have, that this law that we read of, 
And, and when the Pharisees, they see him and they see him healing on the Sabbath and whatnot. They see him as sidestepping the law, sort of skirting its demands. And Jesus is showing, no, I'm the fulfillment of them all. And that's what we find here in Matthew, Mark chapter 7. With these scribes and Pharisees making a very pointed accusation against Jesus' followers. Let's look at it. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 quickly. Because here we're going to see... Some dueling accusations, as I like to call it. So these, there's two accusations that come up here, and they sort of are in conflict with one another. Look at what happens. Verse 1, it says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now, this, you have to understand that this band of these religious guys, these religious elitists, so to speak, are coming from Jerusalem. And that's a significant detail because it indicates that these are sort of higher ranking scribes and Pharisees. They're coming from headquarters, so to speak. On an official sort of authoritative inquiry of this man Jesus who is causing such a ruckus all over the place with his teachings. It also indicates that this wasn't something that they just happened into. They didn't just find the disciples and Jesus doing something that was contradictory to their traditions. They were looking for it. They were coming from Jerusalem, hoping to catch Jesus and his followers red-handed, so to speak, so that they could entrap him, so they could discredit his ministry, disavow him completely from the ranks of public ministry. Again, you can see how spiteful they were. Remember from Mark chapter 3, there's already conspiracy going on of how to get rid of this Jesus. And they're looking for any opportunity they can to seize it and to get rid of him completely. Get rid of him meaning execute him. <laughs> and here again, they come and they are seeking to entrap Jesus. Look at what they do. They came from Jerusalem, this official band of religious guys. And it says, and when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. They get what they want. They were seeking some sort of error in the ways of Jesus' followers. And it appears here that they find exactly what they're looking for. It says they, they find Jesus' disciples eating with defiled hands. Mark explains that what that means by saying with unwashing hands. They were angry. Because they weren't washing their hands properly. Now, before you just kind of like throw that off as just like the Pharisees being germaphobic or something like that. This really is why he adds verses 3 and 4. Because Mark wants you to see this wasn't just a matter of hygiene. This is a matter of righteousness to them. Look at what he says. He explains what he is talking about because he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Keep that phrase in the back of your mind. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. You see, this matter wasn't simply about the Pharisees wanting to practice good hygiene. This was a matter of religion. It was a matter of, of morality, of righteousness for these religious elitists. 
And they were enforcing these demands on everyone. Notice it says the tradition of the elders. The tradition of their forefathers. The traditions of all the Jewish rabbi. They had gone before them. And they had gone beyond what the law had said. What the law had required. It didn't require them to wash uh, all the things that they did. Especially not in the manner in which they did. And it points us to what they were really listening to. Because you see, in your Old Testament, you have the first five books, right? It's called the Pentateuch, often also called the Torah. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, many believed, would have these first five books memorized, committed to memory as part of their education and training. But on top of that, there was this oral tradition that was passed down. All of these Jewish rabbis were taught this orally through speaking and preaching, much like this. Other traditions, other strict rules and regulations. It would be later sort of written down and codified in what is called the Talmud. That was 400 odd years later. But even still, there was this existing, this system of laws by which they defined and and ordered their lives, which was beyond what God had ordered and ordained. And by the first century, there were some 600 rules and regulations in the system that dictated everyone's move at every point of the day almost. This is what what Mark is meaning by the tradition of the elders. It's beyond what God had originally written down and handed down to Moses. It was a a man-made expansion of God's word. A man-made, quote, enhancement and reinforcement of those commands and laws. Such that even here, the, 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 the laws for hand washing... According to the tradition of these elders, it sort of detailed how you were to plunge your hands into the water. And which hand you were supposed to wash first. And how much water you were supposed to use. And on and on it goes. And any failure in any one of those points meant you weren't doing it properly. You weren't following the law. You weren't as righteous. You could see the error of their ways. (laughs) They had begun uh, beyond the law and they had added to it. You can see it again in verse 4. You don't recognize it at first, but that word wash there, it says where except they wash. It's a Greek word uh, that, is, that is exactly the same as the word we get our word, baptize. They go to the markets, they go to the streets, out in, in the city. They come back home and before they eat, they rebaptize themselves. This is how committed they were to avoiding any uncleanness. And not just themselves. As it says, they baptize, they wash all of these household items. This was their tradition. This was their law. This is what they thought was keeping them holy and clean. This is what they thought was giving them the righteousness that they so sought after. This tradition of hand washing. You can see it's not just about being clean on the outside to them, to the Pharisees. It was a matter of holiness, of purity, of righteousness. You can see now they are offended. That their traditions aren't being upheld by Jesus' followers. So they come, look at verse 5. They come to Jesus and his followers 
And they come firmly with their traditions in their mind and like what they say. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition, uh, according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? They come and accuse him. Why aren't you following our laws? And notice, notice that's what they accuse him of. Notice that that's their accusation. Not, why aren't you following the law? They say, why aren't you following the traditions of our elders? That's what they were concerned about. That's what had them so in a rage, so up in arms. Why aren't your disciples washing their hands like we do? Again, you have to kind of sort of read between the lines a little bit. Because it's not just, why aren't your followers as clean as we are? You have to see it. They're asking, why aren't your followers as righteous as we are? This is what they're asking. Why aren't they as righteous? Why aren't they as holy as we are? (laughs) Again, the Pharisees, always sort of putting their foot in their mouth, brandishing their holiness before an all-holy God that was right in front of them. And notice how Jesus responds, because I love it. (laughs) They ask him this question, why aren't your disciples following our traditions? And look at Jesus, he says. He answered and said unto them, well hath Isaiah the prophet uh, prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips. But their hearts, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. As the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. (laughs) I love Jesus. (laughs) He's so funny to me. Because he takes what they say and notice he never really answers their inquiry. He just says, you're hypocrites. <laughs> There's, if you notice, Jesus is, he, he increasingly deals more and more bluntly with the Pharisees. And it kind of comes to a head. If you read Matthew chapter 23, he doesn't mince any words there. And even here, he doesn't sort of hold back. He gets straight to the point. You think you're worshiping me? You're hypocrites. You're exactly who Isaiah prophesied of hundreds of years ago. Of the people who would claim and talk and talk about righteousness with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are so far away from what truly honors me. You can read that prophecy in Isaiah 29.13. But how would, how would you, do you think they responded To the fact that this teacher from Nazareth is connecting us, a group of religious elites, with an Old Testament prophecy of people who have so far, that are so far away from God. (laughs) He calls their worship vain. Look at it, he says, Howbeit in vain you are worshiping me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This word vain is fascinating because it has, of course, the ideas of worthlessness and ineffectiveness. They're just talking and spouting from their lips without truly meaning it in their heart. But it also has the idea of even being manipulative. 
As it's at Jesus here, he, you can notice his accusation. You're manipulating God into favoring you more by constantly presenting your own righteousness and goodness to him. You're trying to manipulate the God who created you by pretending you can be clean in and of yourself. By you can be righteous in and of the things that you do. By holding to the traditions that you have made and interpreted and applied from my own words. You're trying to manipulate this God. I imagine the Pharisees being extremely offended already. (laughs) He is totally blasting them for their traditions. He says, you have replaced God's commandments with your own words, with your own doctrines. You have put them on equal standing with God's law. What a dangerous place to be when you put your own traditions and applications of the word on the same level as the word itself. And he says, in so doing, you've abandoned this word. You've abandoned God altogether. The very God that you claim to study and know and preach and revere is the very God that you are abandoning by your traditions. By the things that you hold so dear. Which leads me to the next little section because along with these sort of dueling accusations, Jesus moves into uh, even pressing further into the conflict by pointing out some misguided applications. Look at what he says. And he said unto them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition." For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. You see, things are getting a little bit heated at this point, I imagine. The the conversation has gone from hand washing to now talking about eternal righteousness. But Jesus here, he presses into the conflict. He leans into that controversy because he wants them to see how misguided, how mistaken they were. And he reiterates again, you are rejecting God's words. And he sets them up to give them an example. He, He wants to prove this to him. So he does so. Again, verse 10, it's almost exact from, the, uh, from Exodus 21, from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. He reminds them that this is what God said. This is what Moses was given by the very mouth of God. He says, for Moses said. He quotes again. He quotes from the Torah. Remember, they should have been familiar with this. They should have very well known exactly what these words were. And the command here to honor father and mother, it didn't have any sort of caveats or excuses or ways out. This is what we are to do. Honor our moms and dads. And he's leaning into a specific thing by obeying when we are young, but also as our moms and dads age, we are to support them as they age. That is how we honor them. That is how we show them respect and reverence. And it's very important that he is leaning into that because look at what he compared. Look at how he contrasts. He says, this is what God's word says. But notice he says, but ye say, these are your words. He says, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban. 
That is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Let me explain a little bit of this because this might go over your heads. If you're not familiar with pharisaical tradition, which you might probably are not. What he's saying here, he's he's pinpointing, he's, he's trying to show them just how different their words are from what God's word says. And he, he specifically mentions this tradition of Corbin, which allowed one to sort of claim, to sort of name and mark all of my possessions or assets, so to speak, as dedicated to God. So let me, I'll give you an example. Say I'm like a super wealthy CEO, seven-figure salary or whatever, and I have a lot to my name, which I, I, do, I do not, so don't, don't think I do. But let's say I do, and my parents, they're in their older age. They're they're elderly at this point, and they cannot care for themselves. They've come to the end of their life, and they are not able to support themselves. God's word, as we have already seen in verse 10, and we also know from the Torah, says, I am responsible to care for them. That is how I show them honor and respect and reverence. That is how I fulfill God's commandments. But notice Here he is saying that your traditions say that I can invoke the right of Corbin and I can now dedicate all of my wealth, all of my assets, all that should have gone to help my aging mom and dad. It can go in service to the synagogue. I don't have to give it to them. I can give it to the work of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now I am free. As it says there in verse 12, I have no more to do aught. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to do anything for my father and mother. This was their tradition. (laughs) This is something that they had laid down way after the fact. This was something that they had come up with. You can see in the appearance of appearing more religious, more holy, quote unquote, They were effectively setting aside the law of God. They were completely rejecting God's word by holding to their traditions. To them, it appeared more righteous. And Jesus is saying, you have no idea what righteousness is. You have no idea what righteousness looks like. And he says as much. Look at verse 13. Well, read verse 12 again. You suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect. You're nullifying God's words through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. I love that he says that. This is, you can see it. This is just one example I'm going to give you. This tradition of Corbin, this is just one area where you have completely nullified God's word. And when he says, there's many other things I could pinpoint. There's many other things I could bring to your attention and recall to your mind that show you have no idea what righteousness really is. They have replaced the commands of God with their own requirements, with their own traditions. One commentator, he says it this way, that the scribes and Pharisees had practically made the moral law of God inoperative 
by placing the mechanical tradition of the elders in the supreme control of life. You can see it. They'd be, they had articulated the law into a, uh, into a sort of a moralistic, mechanical thing. If you do these certain things in a certain way, then you are righteous. Then you are holy. Then you are free from condemnation. And Jesus is saying, no, you've missed it. You've made God's word null and void by your tradition, by your mechanical uh, meandering with the word. I think the truth is for us too. Any tradition, big or small, if held higher than God's words, becomes an evil that turns us away from God altogether. Any tradition... If it's held higher than God's words becomes a pathway of turning people away instead of drawing people in. Uh, Let me just read this verse because I'm reminded of it. In the parallel passage to this, I believe it's Matthew chapter 15. Yes. Matthew 15, it's the parallel passage of the same scene. Jesus ends sort of, or he doesn't end, he, in the middle of this, he, he, he gives this very disparaging uh, description of the Pharisees. He describes how their traditions are leading men astray. He says in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. (laughs) You can see, Jesus is saying they have no idea what they are talking about. They are talking about traditions which they don't have any idea what they were originally for. They've usurped God's word with their own requirements. And here is where we get to verse 14. And Jesus' divine appropriation, because he turns... And he calls them for what they are. He calls everyone here. And he wants to pinpoint exactly how cleanliness works. Notice verse 14. When he had called all the people unto him. He said unto them. Hearken unto me every one of you and understand. Again. A small conversation about hand washing had now turned into a discourse. In which everyone needed to hear conversation with the Pharisees had turned into a sermon that everyone needed to listen to. That even, yes, we, 2,000 odd years later, need to listen to. He proceeds to appropriate, to attest to not only the crux of the problem with the Pharisees, but the very crux of the problem for all mankind itself. He does so by saying something profoundly unexpected. Notice verse 15. Jesus says, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But that the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. He's radically making a revolutionary statement here. Of course, at this time, the Jews, in in Judaism, there was strict dietary laws. This is effectively what he's getting at here. There's nothing you can ingest that makes you defiled. 
Such is why Paul and Peter later, uh, well, especially Paul and Peter got confused for a moment. But if you read Acts, but Paul and Peter said, now all meats are clean. We don't have to worry about them. This is why we can eat bacon. Yes. (laughs) But Jesus is saying all meats are clean. They don't defile a man by what they are. Nothing can come into you and defile you. And notice what he says. He goes on to say, because his disciples are confused by this statement. They're perplexed. What are you saying? You are now contradicting the law, Jesus. And notice what he says. The verses that Pastor Nathan said. We'll start in verse 16. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Concerning his message, concerning his sermon, he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing cometh from without, or everything from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats? And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth. The man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. You can't be defiled from without. Why? Because you are defiled already. It's from within. It's who you are. It's from inside of you. You're defiled already. This, uh, my friends, is what we would call in the theological realm the doctrine of original sin. It just means that you were born a sinner. You don't come into this world and then decide to do something wrong and that's what makes you a sinner. You are born into sin. And if you've had kids, you can see this. It's very true. You can see their sinful little devil hearts. <laughs> Trust me, I've seen it a couple times with Lydia. I know. They look at you. They are born into sin. From within comes all of these things. All this defilement. So you can see how trying to just clean that doesn't get to the problem. I love here because you can, you can hear Jesus saying, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said yesterday at, at Upward, but you can hear Jesus repeating what he's already said in Matthew chapter 5. If you keep your finger in Mark 7, go to Matthew 5 because that's a really effective passage. Because remember, he is talking about the law in Matthew chapter 5. He begins and he expounds in this Sermon on the Mount. He's effectively teaching and working through the Ten Commandments. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law in verse 17. I've come to fulfill it. And then he enhances what his hearers think in verse 20. And he says, he says, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Which must have felt like completely defeating. Because again, 
The Pharisees are religious aristocrats. They're elites. They have the law down to a science. They are the holiest of holy people that these people know. And he says, even that, it's not good enough. It doesn't cut it. Why? Because he says, you have heard that it is said, in verse 21 of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And he says, but I say unto you, that whoever, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He equates killing and anger. And then he equates lust with adultery. He enhances the law. And you can see here, Jesus is effectively saying, you have heard it was said that you can be defiled by something coming into you. But I say unto you that every man is defiled already by what comes out of him. He's essentially repeating the same pattern. He's wanting to show them again. You aren't a sinner because you do. Uh, you, you aren't a sinner because you do sinful things. You are a sinner, and so you are going to do sinful things. It comes from within, from out of your heart. The point is, external hand washing does not cut it in terms of the righteousness of the law. It's not going to cut it. It doesn't get deep enough. It doesn't equate to accomplishing internal righteousness. Just washing our hands by this very specific method. Jesus is saying, it's not going to work. Your problem is way deeper than that. Your problem is way more uh, internal. you see it again. Matthew 5. It's not just loving your neighbor. That's not enough. Jesus says you have to love your enemy. Jesus says not just having sex outside of marriage. That's not enough. It's not looking on your neighbor's wife in lust. Just not killing someone. That's not even enough. It's not even getting angry. And there he says it's not just about cleaning the outside. That's not enough. It's not enough. Your problems in mind, Jesus is saying, are way deeper than just behavioral problems. It's more than just behavior. If behavior was the problem, then we could just follow laws and we would be okay. We could follow these mechanical traditions and we could essentially behave our way out of sin. But Jesus says that does not work. Why? Because as he says in verse 21 back in our text, we are defiled all the way down. This, all of this defilement comes from within. We are riddled with sin to the very core of our being. We are utterly incapable of saving ourselves because we are utterly incapable of accomplishing the righteousness of the law. We cannot do it. It is wholly, entirely beyond our ability. No amount of human effort can ever satisfy God's demands for holiness. This is what he's saying. And such is what Jesus is meaning here. Such is the point he's trying to drive home. That the inner life that I'm trying to get to, the heart of the matter, it cannot be affected by external ceremony. And this is why we have the good news. You know why? 
Because Jesus came to give us the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. He came to be our fulfillment. He came to be our righteousness. He came to be the one who would live up to all of the law's demands on our behalf, in our stead. And then instead of condemning us to hell and starting over, he said, here, take my righteousness and I will take all of your sin. I will take all of your fornications, all of your adulteries, all of your murders, all of your thefts, all of your covetousness, I will take all of your pride and blasphemy and all of that onto myself. I will take it and I will become all of your defilement. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I will be all of your defilement and sin. And that you can be all of my righteousness. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's getting to see that they can't do it. But guess what? I have come to do it on your behalf. I have come to accomplish it in your stead. I've come to be your ransom, your fulfillment. I've come to be your substitute. Jesus didn't come to modify our behavior into better law-keeping performance. He came to perform the law in our stead. He came to be our ransom. He came to be, as we've already said, the unexpected Lord Lord who serves and the unexpected king who dies. Who dies and serves on behalf of sinners. On behalf of defiled, filthy, wicked people. He says here, I've come to do it. I've come to fulfill all of this for you. So the message to the Pharisees, the message to us, is that the only way to be clean, the only way to be holy, the only way to be righteous is to trust in the grace that gives you righteousness. It's to trust in the God who says, here, here's my holiness, take it in faith. Here's my cleanliness, believe in me and it is yours. I won't steal Pastor Nathan's thunder. (laughs) But we come to a new year filled with New Year's resolutions. Have you lived up to them in five days? (laughs) I've already messed up a little bit in terms of one of the ones I was trying to do. Guess what? External resolutions will never give you the righteousness and the peace and the satisfaction that you crave. Only God's resolution for you will do that. And what is this resolution for you? I have come to be your ransom. Let me read the verse. Mark 10 verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is how you get clean. This is how you're made righteous. Not by external ceremony, external works, by your effort. It comes by faith. Which leads us to ask this all-important question. Where is your faith this morning? Is it in your ability to keep the law or is it in this one who kept the law for you? Is it in your uh, constant resolutions to get better and to try harder and to work more to try and earn this favor? Or is it to trust in the grace that says you are mine already? Where is your faith this morning? 
Is it in your ability to make yourself clean? Or is it in the God who says, I will clean you. I will wash you as white as snow. Where is your faith? Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.